Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us on this weekly romp through the people who have been involved in independent music in some capacity, whether it's putting out records, whether it's playing on records, whether it's listening to records and taking the principles that they have learned by listening to those records into their real life. That's pretty good, right? So anyways, this guest this week is Matt Mixon. He is uh, a filmmaker. He made a very, very compelling documentary on the band Misery Signals, and uh, we talk about it a little bit in the uh, interview. But um, I suggest once it's widely available for everyone to consume, you really need to watch this thing. He did an incredible job of a snapshot of a band that, uh, you know, by all stretch of the imagination, is not successful from the sort of mainstream perspective. You know, they did make an impact on the whatever, you know, melodic hardcore genre, and they did do very, very well for, you know, a a period of time. But uh, it's so emblematic of what it's like to be in a band and the lives you touch and like all of these unintended consequences, both positive and negative, when you decide to start a band and when you decide to, um, you know, start to tour and like I said, be present in people's lives that you might not have done if you didn't start that band, if that makes sense. So yeah, Matt did an incredible job with that and uh, that's why I wanted to have him on. He's also a ex-vocalist for uh, Seven Angels, Seven Plagues, which again, was another very seminal, foundational 
band within the context of uh, melodic hardcore in the early 2000s. So yeah, and Matt and I, I, we've traveled in the same rooms. We never really spent any time together. But uh, basically after this conversation, him and I are now like really good friends <laughs> in the sense of we're like texting and, you know, chatting it up like uh, like some, uh, some teenage boys that uh, just met each other and really like video games. That's kind of how Matt and I are now. And I really like that because, you know, we're both uh, dudes in our 30s who, you know, we're we're pretty set you know we we don't need to make quote-unquote new friends but uh yeah i just love that where you can be surprised by a person being like wow we have very similar experiences so anyways i'm a little sluggish right now because uh last night i went to go see bon iver or some people call it bon iver no they don't know they don't really call him that but it was at the hollywood bowl it was um i just music is so insane like it just continually impresses me the stuff that comes out of people's heads and gets poured onto instruments and then gets taken out in a live context. And like, you know, I'm not going to use these words like magical and surreal and whatever, but I've seen him a couple times now in different environments. Um, and last night was just truly special. It was one of those things that you could tell the gravity of the moment of him playing at the Hollywood Bowl. It was sold out. You know, I don't even know the capacity at the Hollywood Bowl, but you know, there has to be like 15,000, 18,000. I have no idea, but there's a lot of damn people. And it was raining most of the night, but then through the duration of his set, it didn't rain at all. It was kind of like this uh, this moment of just like the clouds parting. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it was a, it was a very impactful experience. But because of that, you know, I'm tired because I'm old, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, also... Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, because, um, yeah, I like speaking with you. I like the feedback that I get from people in regards to listening to this show. Um, I've really also liked the experience that uh, people have had in regards to getting exposed to new bands, you know? Like, I got a great email from a person who is in his early 20s, and he was like, I, you know, I'd never heard about certain bands until I started listening to your show via, you know, your appearance on this other podcast or whatever. And I love it because then, you know, him and I started a dialogue where he was asking me, do you listen to any Rise Records bands? And I love that because it was, you know, it made me reflect on like, you know, am I being that guy that's not listening to any new music because I'm like, oh, it's probably terrible. But then after I looked at it, I was like, well, no, there are there are some bands that I've really enjoyed that Rise Records has put out from the sort of quote unquote stereotypical Rise Records release, you know, whatever metalcore stuff. You would like to describe the label as, but um, yeah, anyways, it was just a very, uh, it was a insightful conversation because the whole point of this particular show too is to bring us all together, you know, young, old, in between, whatever. It's a very important thing to uh, put all of these people in context and to hopefully give a voice to people that, you know, might not have it in this particular medium. So there you go. Thank you. So email the show. Anyways, like I said, Matt Mixon did an incredible documentary, um, yeah, on misery signals. And, uh, yeah, I just, I had to have him on. It was one of those things. He, he wasn't emailing me to ask me anything. Uh, I was talking to him about some other project that, uh, I needed his help on. And then, um, yeah, he just, you know, sent me this doc and was like, Hey, you know, check it out. And I personally, I loved misery signals. I, you know, I got a chance to know all those guys and play a lot of shows with them. And, um, yeah, it was just an incredible, incredible documentary. So whether or not you even like the band, uh, that doesn't matter. It's a very representative look at uh, you know how these these bands that we play in and that we kind of circle around are really impactful. You know, even if it's not from the sort of mainstream careerist standpoint, 
they're still incredibly impactful. So here's my conversation with Matt, and uh, hopefully uh, by the next uh, conversation, I'll be a little rested. All right. I'll talk to you then. Man, typically I start these things off with my, you know, entry point to kind of you, your music, and just, uh, you know, us existing in the same scene at the same time, but just not meeting each other, obviously. <laughs> yeah. The uh, so our, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. We're recording. We're live, live and in charge. Okay, cool. We're going now. Yeah. Um, actually, I was uh, uh, talking to Kenya last night at the PETA thing, the walkthrough, and she was like, "Oh, how do you know Ray?" And I was like, "I don't even think we've ever met, actually. No, but we just know each other through the internet." It's true, but we do. I, I think well, because you were de- you were with Misery Signals when Taken played with you guys at. Well, sorry, you guys. I'll include you in the group. You guys at the, nice. the Glass House, right? <laughs> yes, I was there. Okay. Yeah, I think that was the first time we actually met. But we both were like, "Oh, hey, like we know each other, but we don't know each other." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that was actually the one show they wouldn't let me shoot. So that's the one missing show from that documentary. That's, strangely enough, that's true. They, as in the Glass House, wouldn't let you shoot. Yeah, the Glass House. It was some uh, some thing, some liability thing. Interesting. Wow, that was uh, I. I wasn't expecting to see that show, but the uh, yeah, it was. Uh, well, I'm sorry you couldn't film that, but that's okay. The um, so, but my my introduction to you, as far as like you know who who you were, uh, musically speaking, was. Um, I worked at an independent record store here in Southern California called Bionic Records. And, um, it, you know, I w- this was like, whatever, you know, late, late 90s, early 90s, early 90s, early 90s, early 2000s, touring with Taken. Um, you know, obviously I had a job that allowed me to tour, but I was like the main buyer. So I would, you know, I would notice when bands started to kind of, you know, do well because it'd be like, oh, I would order five copies of the CD. And then like a week later, I'd have to order like 10. And, you know, Seven Angels, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, obviously in the infancy of the internet where kids across the country were able to like listen to a band and identify with it, but not obviously ever have a real chance of seeing the band. But I just remember it was one of those things where it was like, dude, I can't, I literally could never order enough Seven Angels CDs to sell at the store. I'd be like, all right, give me a 25 count box. And that they would, they would send it to me. And then like two weeks later, I'd be like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? I have to buy more of these things. Um, and not like I was surprised because I thought it was terrible, but I just was so impressed by it. Um, I presume that you obviously could not feel any of that sort of momentum <laughs> from where you guys were, were standing or did you? Uh, no, not really. I mean, that's, I've always said that that band felt like it got big after they broke up or, I mean, I quit and then they went on for like another couple months and then they broke up. But, um, I never felt like that band was big ever when I was in it or even when it was, even when it existed, we would go on tour and play like these, you know, you'd play like San Antonio or like somewhere completely random and the show would be fucking insane and every kid would know the word and you'd just be like, holy shit. But then we play Milwaukee like, you know, like opening for some big touring band and like, you know, the reaction would be like, whatever. So I, I never, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned it, but I remember the, the Southern California shows we played were really fucking awesome. And that was really encouraging. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, I had, I had no idea. Yeah. It's a, it, it, it was it obviously an interesting time because like you were able to obviously consume music from a, you know, an easier standpoint, but then be able to, you know, a, a band like the first time that they would come through town would be obviously like a little bit more hyped because I think it was also that idea that a lot of the bands that existed within our scene 
you don't you never even know if they're going to come back like you're like this is probably the only time they're going to come to california who knows like you just didn't have an inclination that that you would have you know more times than maybe one maybe two times to see a band you know right yeah it was the best right (laughs) no totally and i did love it where it was like you know even on the strength of a demo like a band would be able to uh you know get a uh you know hype or a following or whatever um and then they would come through southern california and i i know it was always like a litmus test for bands to be like all right man if if we do well in southern california then something might be happening for us you know right yeah totally did you guys did you guys have like when you came out here did you have an expectation for like oh i've heard the shows are pretty pretty sick out here uh man i don't know i'm trying to remember it was so long ago for sure. um yeah i mean i i think we were just excited to be playing like la or whatever quote unquote or whatever um and we ended up on some the only time that i ever played la or maybe it was a suburb i don't even know we ended up on some huge show with like a bunch of christian bands which we always got lumped into for some reason i don't know um and yeah <laughs> yeah i know so well i mean two of the dudes in the band were super religious but then the other three of us weren't and we just kind of ended up in that in that uh thing but um yeah i think we, we we were we were hoping it would do pretty well but it was sick it was like dodging bullets remember that band of course yeah <laughs> uh and i think it was a sold out show it was gigantic and um um yeah i mean I, I i can't remember if there was like expectations one way or another but i know we were super stoked that was like that's like one of the most memorable shows i probably ever played with that band right right and it's always obviously exciting when you get to go to a coast and obviously see an ocean you're like oh man i could see the pacific or the atlantic or whatever totally yeah um and you yourself were you born and raised in, in milwaukee or where did you come up no i was born in boston and i had to move to uh, i grew up in connecticut a bit um, had to move to Madison, Wisconsin when I was 15 after our parents got divorced. And I lived there for the last 20 years or so. Just recently moved to Portland, Oregon last year. Right, right. Um, yeah, because it was... But I mean, I started getting into hardcore like when I got to Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, that was the, the, your introduction to independent music. Because, you know, I mean, I do prep work, obviously. I'm not just like some schmo, like, oh, whatever, I'll talk to this person. I won't even look anything up about them. Cause, but you, surprisingly, like, you know, there isn't a ton of information about you on the internet in regards to, like, past interviews or whatever. Um, you know, is that, uh, I mean, I, obviously, I presume that a lot of it would, would come from the fact that, you know, you were doing interviews pre the internet or whatever. Um, but do you, like, do you find yourself being a private person at all? Or is it one of those things where it's just like, well, no, I'm willing to share. I just, you know, don't get the opportunity to. Yeah, no, I think it's a result of the fact that I was in a band, like my, my, my footprint in hardcore is tiny by, you know, by most standards. But then, you know, you also mentioned it, it took place pre internet. Like I was in a band that like, got bigger as the legend grew like years after they broke up. But, um, you know, that shit was happening like nearly 18 years ago at this point. Um, and I was only in that band for like a year or two. So, um, that's it. Like I've been in a bunch of other smaller bands that never really got outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but that's about it. I mean, besides like making films, that's like my experience with hardcore or maybe besides going to shows, of course, but right. Right. Um, and so you, so there's just not a lot of reason for me to have stuff out there, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're not going to post like a seven page bio on your website. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Did, um, so like when you, you know, your, your family structure, like you said, your parents got divorced when you were 17, uh, 15. Okay. 15. Uh, but prior to that, so like, what was your family structure? Obviously, what did your, you know, mom and dad do for a living and uh, brothers and sisters? 
Yeah, older sister, a um, couple years older than me. Dad worked in TV on the East Coast um, until like a couple years ago. Um, I don't even fucking know what my mom did before we moved. Like she worked as like a secretary or something. And then she ended up becoming a court reporter like once we moved away from the East Coast. Um, but yeah, pretty normal family. Got it, got it. What did your dad do for TV? Uh, he was a producer. Oh, nice. And he was like, uh, I think he was like worked in advertising, buying at some point later down the road. He worked like for CBS in New York when we lived in Connecticut. And then he ended up working in radio years later. Got it, got it. Um, do you think any of your uh, interest in film was uh, fostered by him at all? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, we just watched TV fucking every night after school or, or whatever. Um, so like that's sort of like the the language I grew up um, or like the art form I grew up digesting the most. My sister was a bookworm. She would like be reading at the dinner table and my dad and I would be watching like Star Trek The Next Generation or some movie or something like that. So yeah, I mean, just being exposed to TV and movies like 24-7, um, I think that's probably what led me to where I'm at now. Right, right. And what's your, uh, you know, your your racial makeup? Because you know, obviously, there's a uh, you are not white, which which is obviously uh, something that uh, you know most uh, punk and hardcore people automatically assume that it's just like, oh yeah, well, it's a majority white people. So, um, you know, what's your what's your racial background? Dad's black, mom's white. Okay, got it. So you like Tiger Woods? But now that I live. Now that I live in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the whitest places in the universe, I'm like fucking Wesley Snipes out here. I'm like one of the blackest <laughs> motherfuckers out here. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that, that, there's definitely there's pockets of Portland where you realize that it's like, oh, I, I haven't seen a, a, a person of, of a darker skin at all for like at least 10 minutes. And like I'm in a major city. <laughs> Dude, I'll go days, man. I'll go days. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not that bad. It's not like Boise no, or like um, fucking, I don't know, probably like places in like Montana or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely different than Milwaukee for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then, uh, you know, what, what, like, what identity did you have as a kid? Like when you were obviously going to, you know, junior high and high school, once you started to kind of, you know, your world started to get a little bit bigger. Did you find yourself, you know, gravitating towards sports or obviously were you more interested in like, you know, film, art, kid stuff? No, I was totally a music kid. Um, like, you know, as much as I grew up watching film and, and loving film, like, um, I don't think I really understood my love for it until, like, um, after my parents got divorced and it was, like, the only thing I had to do. Like, before I, I, had, I had wheels and could go to hardcore shows, I would just sneak into movies all the time. So, like, before that, it was all music. It was, you know, like, um, fortunate enough to have turned, like, I don't know, 11 years old, like, right around the time, like, every fucking sick record of the early 90s started to drop. So, like, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Radiohead, Nine Snails, like, all that stuff was, like, popping off, like, right as my ears perked up and started... I started caring about music. Um, so yeah, I was just a, a band kid playing in, playing in shitty alternative rock bands. Oh, nice. And did, did you immediately pick up like, uh, I, I presume you picked up a guitar or were you trying vocals for the first time? I was bass and it was guitar. Um, eventually just ended up being vocals by default. Cause I wasn't really good at either of those other instruments. Right. <laughs> Usually I, I can't tell you how many singers fall into that, that realm where it's like, well, everybody else, I know that I'm friends with that's playing in my band is like much better at me than all this stuff. So I guess I'll just yell or sing or yeah, totally. I know, man, I know. And like, I, you think I get the point, but I'm like, I still practice guitar on the reg. I'm trying to write for, for something right now. And it's just like, still trying to make that dream happen of being a guitar player. Still got something to prove. (laughs) Hey, that's as long. Well, I mean, obviously the beautiful part about uh, punk and hardcore is that you don't need to be that good at it in order to be proficient at something. That's yeah, totally. It's the best. (laughs) 
Um, and so, the, I mean, where were you getting a lot of this input as far as music was concerned? Was it primarily just like radio, MTV, or was it, um, you know, your friends that kind of surrounded you? Yeah, yeah, all those things. Radio, MTV, and friends, for sure. Got it. Um, I mean, I, I, I loved hip-hop, too. Um, but I, I think, like, once, like, Nevermind came out, I probably put, like, I think hip-hop was what I got into first, and then Nevermind came out, and then it was just like, you know, never mind the black album. And then I just was into metal and, and alternative rock for a while. And then, you know, didn't get back into hip hop until later. But, you know, that was, I mean, that, that shit was, was popular. It was on MTV all the time. It was like heavy on radio play. You listen back to it now and you hear songs like, like them bones or like outshined and stuff like it's so heavy and you're like, Holy fuck. But that shit was like, like pop radio at the time, you know, like it was unavoidable. No, totally. Uh, yeah, especially when you listen to uh, the uh, obviously the bands from Seattle, you know, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, all that stuff. Like, there's certain songs where you're just like, "This is legitimately like the heaviest shit that's like ever been played on the radio, like on regular rotation." Dude, Dead and Bloated. You ever listen to Dead and Bloated? That that shit is so fucking heavy, and it's just got a weird time signature. And I'm like, this was just like on the radio once an hour when I was like 11 years old. Right, that's insane. Right. No, it totally, it, it really, when you look at it from that perspective, it's so, it, it doesn't make any sense. And like, when you, if you visit a lot of those bands records, like as they, you know, after the, the early nineties boom, like a band like Silverchair, um, there, some of their records, like after, you know, they became prominent after Frog Stomp, some of those records past it are just like, dude, this is like almost a legitimate hardcore record. It's so heavy. <laughs> I've heard that. I've never, I've never dug deep on, I've never done a deep dive on silver chair, but I've heard that many times. Yeah, it's so weird. There's, I think there was one, there was, there was a kid who used to roadie for a band I played in and he just, he blew my mind with all this silver chair knowledge. And one of them, there's like, there's like even a song that, that kind of talks about like animal liberation in some weird way. Like they don't actually overtly say it, but it was just like, what the fuck is happening? This is Silverchair. This is like the band that was 14 years old from Australia. It's so weird. Dude, that's crazy, man. Yeah, I used to cover one of their songs in a band I was in. That's amazing. Or we used to, yeah. Please tell, so did you focus on like all covers in these bands or like what was the, uh, was your idea that you wanted to play shows with these bands? Yeah, um, but I mean like there wasn't really sort of any like infrastructure set up for, for like, you know, kids in sixth grade to play shows at that point, especially not like you know, alternative rock. We didn't like understand like DIY or, or, or punk rock or anything like that. So, we, I mean, we would play it like <clears throat> they'd have these like summer reach out events for like, you know, teens are supposed to go and hang out and they'd have shows there sometimes. And, um, but it was mostly just like, you know, guitar, bedroom, basement doodling. Um, most of the bands I was in was with my friend Jeff who went on to be in with honor and like a bunch of other bands like on the East oh, coast. Yeah, of course. Of course. I know Jeff. That's awesome. Oh, you know, Jeff? Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He he and I grew up together in Connecticut and like um, all, all those dumb bands I was in were with him, which is pretty rad. No, that's incredible, especially when you. Yeah, there, it's always interesting because obviously when you make friends at that age, that very volatile age where, you know, obviously it goes one of two ways. You either stay friends throughout the time uh, but then sometimes you have those friends that like you're super into something and then you know one person kind of starts to veer off because they start to get into you know introduced to other friends or whatever and then you just kind of watch them slowly fade away so that's rad that you've had jeff by your side that whole time yeah and he's who got me in hardcore too when i when i moved away i think we were just starting to get into like epitaph and like pop punk bands and stuff like that and like i remember like he sent he sent me a tape in the mail like right when i got to wisconsin and it had <clears throat> snap case on it. And he was like, dude, this kind of sounds like biohazard. And I was like, Oh, that's sick. 
and he's like, but it's sick. Cause like, I don't think he like, like biohazard or whatever. Um, and that, that tape had like snap case and shelter and a couple other things on it, maybe like Fugazi on it or something like that. So like I, you know, when I landed in a new city where I didn't know any of the kids and went to a high school where like, I, you know, I didn't meet any punk or hardcore kids. Like he would continue sending me shit from the East coast, like audio, like uh, cassette tapes. And that's how I got an hardcore through him. Nice. Nice. Uh, I, I presume like, did your sister have any, like, was she into any of that at all? Did it kind of usher any sort of musical influence in, in regards to that at all? Nah, she was a theater nerd. She hung out with like pretty cool kids, but they, they weren't into anything cool like or anything like that, like punk or hardcore at all. Right. Right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Anything cool. They're all this, some, some weird stuff that I wasn't into. I just like guys screaming into microphones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, but no, I find it interesting because, you know, usually, uh, the experience of people is like, you know, maybe an older brother or older sister like shows them, it doesn't have to be obviously like, you know, deep cuts, but they're like, Oh, here's like the cure. And you're like, Oh wow. There's something that's like not played on the radio or whatever. Um, dude, that's like, it's like the cheat code for being cool is to have a cool older brother or sister. It's not even fair. Like the coolest fucking kid, you know, had a cool older brother or older sister. Like that's, that's straight up. Like my, are, are we, uh. I live with a bunch of dudes. Like we all live together in, in Milwaukee and, and Portland. And, and one of our older mates from Milwaukee is a student named Carl who like his brother was in like metal and like death metal and stuff. And his sister was into punk rock. So he just got like the sickest shit from both worlds when he was like, you know, like, like a single digit age. Like he, he was telling me that like, he was telling me about listening to the black album when it came out and being like, this is fucking bullshit when he was like 12 years old. And it's like, meanwhile, most of us, his age, like we hear that. That was like the first time we ever heard Metallica, like, believe it or not. And we're like, this is fucking sick. And he's already like, whatever, like 12 or something. And he's like, fuck this. And he just goes and listens to carcass or something like that. Or like dead Kennedy's. And it's like, God damn it, dude. Like you had all the advantages, man. Fuck. We had to figure this shit out. Like organically, like through MTV, you just, your sisters hands you a fucking misfits tape when you're like six years old. And you're just jamming out to that, you know? Right, totally. I, I love how you put that a cheat code because that's totally that is one hundred percent correct. It's like you're all you're birthed into it. You're just like, oh, cool. I happen to be like the coolest kid ever. Like ten years before everybody else catches up to me. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, there was this girl that went to our high school. I remember who like I think her older brothers were into stuff, and she like I can remember seeing she she had a sick of it all windbreaker on. This is in Connecticut before I moved like years before I knew who that band was. And then I was like looking back like five years later when I discovered them and I was like, Holy fuck, this girl was listening to sick of it all in like seventh grade. Jesus Christ. <laughs> totally. That's incredible. Um, and so then, then obviously once you, I mean, as music started to kind of consume you even more as you, you know, went down the rabbit hole, um, was it one of those things like, did your parent, was there any cause for concern from your parents? Like, you know, were you a good student or how, how did that kind of play itself out in the house? Um, yeah. So I lived with my mom. Like it was just, she and I, once we moved to the Midwest, cause my sister went off to college. I think they were like waiting for my sister to go to college before they got divorced. So it was just my mom and I, and, um, you know, I in, like instantly when I got there, I had no friends. Um, I wouldn't meet Ryan from Misery Signals and seven angels until like, um, like a year later. Or so before we started hanging out. Um, so Jeff, again, my friend Jeff would just send me these tapes and I got into hardcore and I was just like, I, I discovered straight edge and I was like, Oh cool. That's like kind of what I'm already doing. Like that sounds cool. And, um, <clears throat> I think once my mom, like, like I communicated to her what straight edge was and like, she like believed me or whatever. She was just like relieved that. Cause like I just moved to a new city, you know, I could have just gone like down a, you know, like I'm, I'm bummed kind of path and gotten into drugs or something shitty. But I was like, yo, I'm into this, I'm into straight edge and, and hardcore. And she was like, Oh, that's fucking tight. And then like from that point on, she was just like 
let me do whatever I wanted because she knew that I wasn't drinking or, or out doing drugs or whatever. Um, so, like, you know, I found straight edge, like, as soon as I moved. Um, and that was just kind of, like, me and I, for the rest of high school, pretty much. Right, right. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Um, and then, I mean, obviously, I mean, you said that, you know, when your parents got divorced, that you felt like it was, you know, they were just waiting for your sister to graduate. Um, was it one of those things like you were aware of in the house that like, okay, mom and dad are not getting along. This seems to be some friction here. And how did it, how did it affect you from that perspective? No, I remember, I don't think I had any idea actually. Like I don't remember being too surprised, but I also remember being like, holy shit, I like, guess this is pretty crazy news. Cause we were supposed to move to New York city. That was going to be the thing. But then at the last minute, the mom decided she wanted to move to Wisconsin because she had family there. So, um, yeah, didn't really see it coming, but um, I was just really bummed to leave my friends now. Like, I was really close with Jeff and a couple other dudes in Connecticut. Um, 
and more than anything that that sort of bummed me out from that. But um, no, things at home were fine. It, it was a pretty easy as far like on that front. Right. Right. And did you uh, did you find yourself having to uh, I guess work harder at keeping a relationship with with your dad, or was it one of those things that you know that that transition was was relatively seamless as well? Uh, yeah, I mean that's, that's one of those things that, that definitely got strained and um, sort of fractured, I suppose, um, over the course of the next however many years. Um, you know, we still live in the same state, so uh, we're not nearly as close as we would have been. Right. Right. Um, and so then, uh, like you said, obviously, once you landed in, in Madison, um, was it, uh, that's when you obviously discovered, you know, what shows were and what like independent music was from that perspective. Um, and once you got exposed to it, was it one of those things that was like, you know, a light switch going off, you just immediately started to try to go to as many shows as possible? Well, you know, I'm still 15 at this point, so um, not only do I not have any, not only do I not have a license, but I don't have any fucking friends to, like, you know, get into shit like this, so I know there were shows that took place in Madison, and there were obviously shows happening in Milwaukee and Chicago, which is only about, like, a 90-minute drive or so, um, but I didn't go to shows for another couple of years, because I just didn't have the, the means to, to get to it, so it's like, my experience in Harper was literally just, like, buying CDs and, like, dreaming about it, and, like, you know, trying to, like, like, you know, there's no internet or anything either, so you're just you're basically just like listening to CDs and like reading lyrics and liner notes and shit, um, right. and then like meeting friends and, and like trying to get them them into stuff and discovering stuff. Like the record store was probably like the the biggest like experience you could have at that point. It's just like going out and like looking for CDs with bulldogs on. The store was called Bulldogs. No, I'm saying like trying to find like any. Oh, trying to find the bull. Of course. Of course. I always joked around with. uh friends that were like either talking about signing with victory or you know doing something with them i was like do you, you know there's a clause in the contract that you need to get a bulldog tattoo right they're, they're like no there isn't and i'm like no i know i'm just kidding but they have bulldogs over everything <laughs> yeah but i mean but yeah that was it man like i was like that was the most exciting fucking thing ever to be like you know and like i didn't i couldn't get i couldn't even get the rides to the cool record store because it was on the east side of town and i was like really far away but I got my mom to take me one Saturday I remember and I just like hung out there as long as I could until she made me leave but then otherwise you just like go to the mall and like cruise through Sam Goody and then every once in a while you'd see like Stripe or something and be like holy fuck this is fucking Stripe I mean like I already own the CD but it was just like exciting to like see that CD and like Tower Records or something like that yeah no, oh, totally. Yeah, you feel like uh, there, there's like a, a small sense of victory. You're just like, oh yeah, it's co- it's coming up. Like it's not too big, but it's coming up, and that's rad. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, like, w- did you have a vision? I guess on you know what you wanted to do with uh, you know yourself after high school. Like, was there uh, a, a vision for uh, a career, a job, or anything like that? Or uh, did you graduate college? Did you uh, you know pursue that higher education? <laughs> Yeah, I went to college. Um, I'm not sure if I had any idea what I wanted to do when I was in high school still. Again, I was really stoked on playing music. Like, I got into a band with, with Ryan, who was in Major Signals Now, and, like, who was in Seven Angels with me. And I think we were pretty stoked on playing music at the time, so that was kind of the plan. Um, you know, like, midway through high school, he got his license. I didn't get mine until, like, almost right before I graduated. So we started driving to shows in Milwaukee and Chicago. Um, and we both wanted to go to school in Milwaukee um, just to like be near our course in there and like be near our buds and stuff like that so um, I went to college like to get a year off and then I ended up in college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin which is like 90 miles um, 
east of Madison. And yeah, I think the goal was just to like hang out and be in bands and um, play shows and you know do hardcore. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Just be a part of the scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then, what, what was the first band that you did? Uh, we were in a, a, a band in high school. Ryan and I called Divine Right. That was based off this Jim Lee comic book that was uh, that image was putting out. And like we didn't even know. Like I don't know. And again, with like the religious overtones, we, we just thought it was a badass sounding name. Right. Um, and we, we played like we played some covers, but then we had tons of originals. We like really wanted to sound like VOD, I think, because um, that was like that record was like fucking huge at the time. That first VOD record, um, yeah. And then uh, <clears throat> after high school, Brian joined Seven Angels, and I joined this this kind of like prayer for cleansing, undying, trying to be ass band called In This Day. Um, and after a short time in that band, I quit and I joined Seven Angels and, and hung with those dudes. Um, who, who I, I already lived with. In this day, did you guys didn't you guys put out something on Uprising or who, who did you work with? Yeah, I think they did. I only did like a demo and a comp song, I think. Um, but I think they went on to, to be on Uprising as well, as, as well as Seven Angels. Right, right, right. It was, it was either Uprising or Tribunal. I just remember that name of just like, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and so, did you you sang for both of those, or did you play guitar in those? No, I sang. I sang for both bands. NSA had two singers, so when I did, they were fine. And you—you've always struck me as a person who's, you know, very friendly and you know, kind of outgoing. Like, was it uh, was it difficult for you to kind of get up on stage and sing um, from that sort of like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this, or was it kind of just like, well, I'm going to do this and figure it out? No, it was fine. Like, I, I loved it. Um, I still kind of wish I could do it. Like, I physically it was hard for me. I was in really bad shape, and I had like terrible, terrible asthma that I didn't get under control until like my late 20s um, so like it's funny like whenever I look back at pictures of me playing with those bands I'm always like doubled over like grabbing my pant leg for dear life because I fucking can't breathe and I'm trying to like scream you know um, so yeah no, I, I loved it I thought it was like the best thing ever I mean I think I was like really just empowered through like the DIY spirit of like fuck it like you got something to say get out there do it and like I mean like my voice sounded like shit towards the end of Seven Angels because I think mostly because I was just out of shape and I couldn't really like get the breath and I didn't really understand like diaphragmational breathing or anything like that. Like, I had no idea how to scream. Like I was having asthma attacks every night. But like I remember when I graduated high school and I was still doing that that high school band. Like my voice sounded fucking sick. I just like loved grabbing the mic and like making that thing go and like just being you know loud and sounding badass. You know, once you started to kind of obviously like play shows and start to not even have like half a following, but just start to be, you know, what you wanted to do, which is obviously be, you know, part of a, a scene, whatever that, that meant, um, you know, was the eye on the prize as far as like, Oh, we got to get it on tour. We got to do this. Totally, man. Yeah. Touring, touring was everything. It was like the, you know, the ticket to like the great adventure. It's, it's like what we always strive for. And it was as good as advertised when we finally got to do it for sure. Yeah. You immediately loved being on the road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember I used to get homesick um, and like I didn't get along with some of the dudes in the band a lot and that was annoying. But like otherwise, like I was just hanging out with my best friends and like seeing mountains and oceans um, and like talking to girls and like, you know, (laughs) meeting friends and shit like, dude, it was the best, man. It was the best. Right. (laughs) No, I know. It's especially when it's so weird because obviously your, your peer group of that age, too, they don't you know, it's like 
they don't understand like you know say you obviously like tour during the summer of high school and then like you come back and everyone's catching up over you know like oh what'd you do it's like oh you know did like whatever basketball camp or you know just kind of typical high school experiences and then you're like oh yeah like i went on tour for like two months and people are just like what does that even mean like i don't even understand i don't even understand what do you tour Well, I never had the, the pleasure of going on tour in high school, but I can remember, in, even in college, I can remember playing like weekends, like driving to the East Coast and playing like Yukon and like somewhere in like upstate New York and then like Pennsylvania and then like getting back at like six in the morning and having to be at class at like 10 a.m., just like, you know, fried, but like feeling like I led this, you know, second life, like kind of like, um, like when Ed Norton in Fight Club like goes back to his office and he's got all his bruises and he's just like looking at everybody else like you know like you guys have fucking no idea like and and just like that that was that was the fucking coolest thing ever right no it to- it totally is especially yeah when you get, like you said you get dropped off for like an eight a.m. class at like you know seven forty five like by your bandmates and people are just kind of looking at you like what what the hell is this why is he do- why is he getting dumped out of a van this is weird. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I literally remember like getting back from a, from a weekend, just like on no sleep and then going to a full day classes. Like I'd be dead if I tried to do that now, but oh, that yeah. was, that was so rad. For sure. Especially too, like you always recognize in hindsight, you're like, dude, why did I sign up for that 8am like math class? Like that was, t- that was a stupid idea for me. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, and so then, uh, like you said, obviously once you started to, you know, tour and experience the world, um, was it, uh, I mean, obviously during that time too, it's always, you, you never had any inkling that you could kind of do this from like a, Oh, like let's, you know, make this a career or whatever. Um, but were you just basically kind of experiencing like as it went along or did you have your sight set for like, Oh, this, this would be great. But like, I, I, I was interested in these other things uh, as well. Yeah. I mean, like, I, like I said before, I wasn't in seven angels very long. Um, I think I might've been in that band for like less than two years, actually. Like I happened to have sang on the record, but, um, they existed along like a while before me and a little while after me. Um, and <clears throat> I think I was really conflicted. Like I, I thought I should stay in school. Cause like, you know, we'd be broke and like tour was, was tough and I'd always get sick. And like, like I said, I was in really bad shape. So like the shows were physically a struggle for me. Um, and like, towards the end of it, I was just like, yeah, fuck it. Like, I, I think I kind of just want to not tour as much cause they wanted to ramp up and just be like, you know, full time. Um, and I wanted to, I, I decided to quit and stay in school. Um, and like looking back, like, especially after editing that documentary, um, and like sifting through footage of like all those dudes on the road. Cause like a lot of, a lot of the documentary deals with uh, a tour that took place like four or five months after I quit the band when I was just like chilling back in Milwaukee, like in fucking, I don't know, economics right. 201 or whatever. And like those dudes are like in Florida and like having all these like great adventures together. And like, um, 15, 20 years later, like I spent the last year going through all this archive footage of them. Um, and it was so weird. Like I, I, I don't know why I didn't fight harder to keep doing that. Cause like, maybe I just thought it would always be an option. Like, Oh, I can just, you know, be in a band whenever and like, you know, find the, the resources to like go on tour and just make it happen again. But like really like two of my best friends in the world were in that band. And like, um, I don't know why I didn't fight harder to like make the dream work just to like hang with them longer. Cause like watching those, that video of them and just being like, fuck, like where was I? Like right. I was probably like 
playing Grand Theft Auto 3 on PlayStation or something like that. And like these dudes are off like, you know, fucking going to Europe and like playing all these cool shows and shit. I don't know. It was like, uh, it was a mistake. I feel like I, I exited too early. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and you can look back on that and you obviously look at it through rose-colored glasses in regards to, you know, the nostalgia trip that you would have on it. Um, but, you know, I mean, like when you're faced with these real choices, like, I mean, you obviously you can count on, you know, all of your hands and toes, the amount of bands that broke up during that era because, you know, one or two dudes had to go to school and like focus on real life. Like, you know, these things are, are real, you know? So it's like, well, like you said, you could have stretched it out a little bit longer. It's like, you know, I get where you're coming from because it was like, you know, it's like, I'm I'm not going to be, you know, a 35 year old touring in a hardcore band. Like that's not a, there's no path to that. It doesn't make any sense. How long did you tour for? Uh, from like 97 till about 2004. I mean, well, that was the years that Taken was most active, but it was about 99, 2000, actually 2000 to 2004 is when we toured the most. Um, so full time? Well, more full time was like 2001 till about 2003 before we started to ramp down. So it was a good two, two and a half years while we were, you know, we were out for at least four, four months or so, roughly. I mean, it was always around schooling in some capacity, um, but then towards the last year and a half we started to be able to you know go out more where it's just like school was an afterthought for most people so because mm-hmm. i mean like like you're like we were both saying where it's like that time was so weird because the, all you could look at as far as a a roadmap of success it's like you had bands like you know obviously like you know sick of it all and all that sort of you know the the new york city hardcore but then you had bands like oh well hate breed like does it and then like poison the well is doing it and they're getting really popular but like it you didn't you had no idea that this was going to be a thing you know (laughs) yeah totally but the um so obviously like you said you know once once you left and you focused on school what did you end up getting your degree in uh journalism oh okay you felt like that was uh so you wanted to be like a writer you want to work in news where was your focus yeah i wanted to write um i wanted to write like magazine features like tell stories um and eventually got i'm sorry I was just going to say, never wanted to write about music from that perspective? Maybe, maybe I did. It's, it's hard to remember, man. Like so much of college is like going through the motions. Like I think I was interested in writing. Um, I don't know if there was anything, any specific drive to like write about music specifically. Got it. Got it. Well, cause yeah, usually it's like people that, you know, especially like singers like yourself, like you realize that, um, you know, writing, it's like, oh, well, like I like writing lyrics and I like expressing myself. And then, you know, they kind of go down the path of like, oh, well, I can express myself by, you know, giving reviews or whatever, like doing those like little, you know, freelance things for local scenes or whatever. But right. Yeah. It's cool. You had a lot like you wanted to work on a, a little bit larger scale than that. Yeah. You know, it's weird that I wanted to write too. Cause I always felt like, like a huge, I, I had I struggled so bad writing lyrics. Like I, I always felt like I was terrible at it. And like, I wrote only like a, like a few seven angel songs, like the, with the rest of the dudes, like wrote the lyrics for the rest of the songs. Like, so it's funny that like, cause I can remember like actively struggling so hard and like trying to impress those dudes and like write sick shit and just coming up with nothing. And then meanwhile, I'm going to class and like, you know, writing every day. It's weird. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, it's kind of, it's, it's definitely two different muscles too. Yeah, that's true. And, for sure. Uh, did you, uh, you know, did you like recording? Like, did you like that, that experience of, of, you know, kind of, cause it, it, it's weird recording vocals. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I don't think there's anything normal, especially when you're an aggressive band and yelling into a microphone. Did you enjoy the experience at all? 
Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I remember like they doubled me up a couple times and I was just like, I sound so fucking sick. This is the fucking sickest thing ever. <laughs> and then like <laughs> recording gang vocals, I remember being so fucking tight too. And like, just like sort of like directing it. And, um, right. yeah, it was awesome, man. No, that's cool. Yeah. You're like, all right, you're hitting the wrong syllable here. It's, it's da, da, da. <laughs> right, right, right. Totally. Yeah. So much of that. Right. That's, that's funny. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash um and so then uh i mean it's it sounds like obviously as you uh you know started to go through through college like you love you know madison and like the milwaukee area um there's no reason for you to like want to go elsewhere no i mean like i always just wanted to hang with my friends and my friends lived in milwaukee so we just stayed in milwaukee and it wasn't until like years later when like a bunch of my friends at the exact same time were like, we all want to move that we all decided to move. Like, I think if all my friends are still in Milwaukee, I'd probably still be there now. I wish I had moved to the West Coast like years ago. Like Midwest brother weather is complete bullshit. But um, <clears throat> no, it's all, it's just, you know, it's just about being near friends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always, it's always struck me as a real special thing that you guys have up there. Um, I mean, obviously with like fuck city and, and everybody, you know, essentially, you know, living together in, you know, uh, the house that you guys did in, um, it was something I was going to ask a little bit later, but 
you know, because it, it, it's rare to keep people together for a prolonged period of time, obviously, because you guys, you know, uh, Andy obviously, you know, had uh, extreme success with fallout boy. And obviously he, uh, has done a lot to help out his friends from that perspective, but then you guys just basically sticking together, um, supporting each other, you know, from an outsider's perspective, just watching what you guys do, that's pretty special. Like, do you, do you feel like it's a pretty unique situation that you guys have created up there? And then obviously, like you said, moving out altogether as well. Dude, it's unbelievable, man. Like, I mean, I try to focus on daily gratitude. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to with like what we have and like what we've had for going on a decade right now. Um, fuck. Okay. So it's 20, I didn't even think about this. It's 2016. It's fall 2016, 10 years ago. Uh, like kind of right after Fall Out Boy got big. Well, this is okay. So, so this, the whole story is that like uh, yeah, Andy. Please, yeah, please, please, please lay it all out <laughs> because this. I, I mean, I, I know bits and pieces of it, but it would be nice to have a chronological order of this. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so Andy, uh, who plays drums in Fall Out Boy now, um, he, myself, Ryan, and Kyle, who are both in Misery Signals and who are both in Seven Angels, uh, the four of us live together in this like dump piece of shit house uh on kramer street in milwaukee near the university of wisconsin milwaukee where we all attended except for kyle um and one day we were all sitting around eating thai food and by the way this is fucking crazy because i'm pretty sure this conversation is on video somewhere and when i was doing the archival stuff for like for the yesterday was everything doc i was like searching for this moment to find it because i can remember like vividly us sitting there and i can remember like ryan uh this kid that used to work at Best Buy. Like I used to steal money from this pizza place I worked at and this kid would steal electronics and we would just trade and I would just like give him money from the till and buy shit. And this was like right around the time like American Beauty was out, like that cool little like flip video camera. It was like a, yep. a tiny, like almost like a VHS size. It was like fucking so high tech for like 2000 or whatever. And like this kid stole one from like the circuit city or Best Buy warehouse. And he, and he like, he brought it to me and I bought it for like nothing. And I had it for like a year and then I got a better one and I sold it to Ryan and Ryan used to just video record everything. So like a bunch of the video from the yesterday was everything doc was shot on a stolen video camera. That's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> but so I remember Ryan sitting sitting there with this video camera that day, like shooting. And I'm pretty sure this was on video. Anyway, we don't have it long story short, but, uh, we were talking about how if anybody ever got, cause I had just quit seven angels. I think those dudes were starting like going to start misery signal soon. And Hurley was in this band project rocket with Kyle also, which I think was they they were more interested in, but then he had also just joined fall Out boy. I can't remember the exact chronology, but yeah, yeah. we were talking all these different projects and, uh, and we were like, yo, if anybody ever gets big off music, you got to buy a house and everybody gets to live in it. And we were like, yeah, fuck yeah. And, you know, it's just a, you know, fucking in punk rock bands. Like, we're just like, it's tongue in cheek. It's a joke, you know? But then, like, three years later, it basically happened and Fall Boy blew up. And, <clears throat> and, like, right around the time, like, their first record came out, I remember Andy bought this, this kind of like modest house in a suburb of Milwaukee. And we used to go up there and hang out and it was the fucking coolest place. Cause it's just like your rich friend's house. Kind of like, it wasn't like a gigantic place, but it was just like, you know, you like, you'd go to your like, like pretty comfortable friend's house for a sleepover. And they just had like all the sickest snacks and like the dope TV and like you'd rent movies. And like, it was like a house like that, but like owned by a kid who was our friend and we would just play PlayStation and watch movies and like watch football and shit. And it was like the fucking best. And like that fall we were playing football, all of us together and I broke my foot and I couldn't pay rent. And, um, <clears throat> and I had to move out cause I couldn't work. So I couldn't pay rent and my lease was month to month. So I had to move out and I was like, going to be forced to like have to move back in with my mom for the first time in like 
whatever, like seven years or something. And I was just like, dude, can I stay in your guest bedroom? And he was like, yeah, for sure. So I moved into his guest bedroom and then like, I lived there for like six months on my foot rehab, finally like ended up going back to work. Um, and I was going to move back to Milwaukee cause we were like a little ways outside of Milwaukee. And he was like, dude, don't go like, this has been the best. And I was like, I got to go back to Milwaukee. Like that's where I work. Like that's where like everything I do is. And he was like, fine, I'll just buy a house in Milwaukee. So he, he found this like amazing, like Frank Lloyd Wright mansion on the lake on Lake Michigan with like a private beach and like this fucking just the, the best place ever. Right. And he bought it. And he, and then he invited Ryan to live there. And then Kyle ended up living there. And then like a couple of our other friends ended up, and Stu from Misery Signals eventually moved in. And then like four years later, that stupid conversation we had as a joke became a reality. And we just all lived with the dude. And then, yeah. um, those dudes eventually, I mean, Ryan moved out. He, he, he had kids. He moved to Idaho. Stu moved away. He moved to Vancouver to do a different band. And, um, we just kept like porting in new friends, like younger blood, like younger kids. And, uh, and then we, last year we all decided we wanted to move and we all moved out here and he just bought an even sticker house in Portland. And now we all live together in Portland. I, I love that because it's like every community, like, you know, punk and hardcore community has the house that people stay at, you know, it's like they have the, you know, oh yeah, you're going to stay with uh, this dude when you roll through this town or whatever, you know, as long as it's like of a certain level, you know, if you're playing a show in front of like four people, like you're probably not going to have quote unquote access to that person. But then, um, you know, just, just to have that even, you know, extrapolated even further to like what you guys were doing where it was just like. Oh yeah, it's incredible, and it's like it, re- it. It's so unique because of obviously the random circumstance of Andy happening to be in like one of the most popular rock bands in the world. Um, it's like you know that doesn't happen <laughs> to most scenes from that perspective, and I think that's honestly why um, you know so many people like look up to Andy, especially that come from our scene, because it's just like you know talk about a person that like obviously hasn't changed as a human being, and it's like he had every opportunity to change as a human being, but he's just like, nah, I'm just I'm just the drummer. I just want to hang out with my friends. Dude, he's he's the fucking best dude. Like he always cracks me up because he'll like text me from time to time. Like, and this is what always kills me. Like, okay, so they met fucking Obama on inauguration night, and like I remember they met they met like Jay Z and Beyonce like really early, like when they were first blowing up, and like Kanye and like you know you know sports stars and like everybody you can think of. But then every once in a while he'll just text me and be like yo, I just hung with Chino from Deftones. It was fucking sick. And like, that's like what he's super stoked on. Or like, I just met like such and such. who used to drum for like whatever. Or like I'm hanging out with the dude from Damnation or, or like something, you know, whatever. Like something that like, you know, just such like lower stand. I'm just thinking like, you fucking met the president. Like, you know, like it's not, totally. this is not much, you can't get much higher than that. And like also the dude is just like, he's still such a hardcore kid. He's in like a hundred, he's in like a hundred bands right now. Like I've not, I don't know if you've heard of Sect. Sect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he's, I just find it. So yeah, like I said, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, it's that total, um, you know, like kid Goonies never say die attitude of like, Oh, like I I would like to do this one day. And then like, you know, because honestly it's like, if that happened to anybody within like, you know, I had a, a very similar house that like I lived at with some of my best friends and it's like, it totally would have been the same scenario if, if all of a sudden one of us became, you know, very well off that we would have probably done the same thing, you know, but it's just like those circumstances don't always happen. And it, yeah, I just find it. So not only is it charming, but obviously it just goes to show that I think, what we have here in independent music is obviously so special because that, you know, that shit doesn't, I mean, yeah, you could be like, Oh, it's like entourage. And it's just like, it's n- nothing like that. 
<laughs> well, I mean, that was really a lot of what we modeled it after because that show was like <laughs> really, really popular when we when we first like started living together, and we would just watch it all the time and just be like, "Fuck yeah!" We're like, like hardcore entourage. <laughs> totally, totally. No, that's true. I got yeah. So I, okay, maybe you can maybe you can phrase it like that. It's like a less broy entourage. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely less broy. It's a hardcore entourage for sure. Um. And so then, uh, you know, as you were obviously, uh, you know, living with your friends and kind of, you know, being able to pursue your whatever creative passions that you had, um, you know, because obviously you didn't have, you know, a huge overhead to crack from that perspective. Um, you know, where did you obviously started to find yourself being drawn to, you know, the visual medium and creating film and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, walk me through that process on like how you started to kind of put that into action. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and again, like another gigantic thanks to Andy. I don't, I don't know if I'd be making films if not for him. Like this film that I just made, we're going to put it out. It's not going to make any fucking money. It, like I basically spent a year and a half on it for no money at all, just because it was something I was passionate about. That's not something I'd be able to do if I didn't have a dude letting me stay in his awesome house, you know, and not have to worry about a lot of the things that a lot of people have to worry about, like, you know rent and fucking staying alive and stuff like that so um thanks shout out to andy again for that but um yeah like uh, when i graduated college it was it was pretty hard to get into film diy because there were just no cameras like you couldn't like i had a shitty fucking you know like handy cam or whatever but i was never one of those kids who like made movies like that it just seemed like the barriers to entry were really high um and also like I don't know. I don't really think I was like super interested in, in doing anything when I first graduated anyway. So like it was, I just kind of like got lost in like going on tour with, with fall play or misery signals and just like hanging out. And like, I was a bartender for years, but then like a couple of years later, um, like when DSLR started to come out and it was easier to shoot something and have it like look pretty good. Um, I got some cameras and started making short films and sort of just fell into documentary. Um, and then when the opportunity presented itself to, well, Misery Signals invited me on tour to um, shoot like a, I had done like a making of their last record documentary thing that they put out with their Kickstarter thing. Um, it was like a 45 minute, like, you know, like three part series about like them recording Absent Light. Um, and then when they went to do that reunion tour, the Malice X tour, which like featured the original lineup playing together for the first time in a decade, um, they're like, yeah, just come out and shoot the shows and we'll make a little tour DVD. Um, and I was like, cool, tight. They had like no budget. I was like, that's fine. I get to go into it with my friends real quick. Like, it'll be a fun, cool thing. Um, they'll pay me a bit of money to edit it. It'll be awesome. Um, but then I got out there and um, there was a lot happening beyond six shows. There was a lot of drama taking place behind, you know, closed doors and, and backstage and stuff. Um, and it seemed like a really perfect opportunity to sink my teeth into like a bigger project, like my first big project. Like the longest thing I'd shot before that was probably like something like 15 minutes and it wasn't even that good. Um, so I just started filming everything and doing interviews and, um, trying to dive as deep as I could into the story that was unfolding like every day. Um, and that turned into my first feature length documentary, which is yesterday was everything. So that's what that's, it's kind of wild to me that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously you were pursuing something, you didn't know what it was, but then in the middle, uh, like it's, it's a very interesting scenario that you find yourself in because obviously, like you said, you saw this drama kind of ari- arising around you. And the only way that you would really be able to capture that is by the fact that, you know, all these people you know, sensibly are, you know, people that you've known for quite some time and they, who trust the way that you're going to portray it, you know? Um, 
that that seems like such a random set of coincidences to be able to be like okay now i see this as a documentary sort of full-length thing yeah it was really lucky i mean because like i always say the difference i mean I, i don't really like documentaries actually like they typically bore me and i think um the reason is because I don't think many of them are that good. I think a lot of them are homework. I think a lot of them are like feature like magazine articles disguised as movies where they just get somebody to tell you what's happening instead of you reading it. And like in a lot of ways, like the medium is wasted because um, you're not there. Nobody's showing you anything. It's just a bunch of people telling you a story. And, you know, it's cool to like have somebody who was there tell a story and then you see an old photo and then you're like, oh, holy shit. But like it's I, I always like being there, like being in the mix. And I always think it's about access. Access is the key to good um you know like non-narrative storytelling like how much is somebody going to give you whether it's an interview like on 60 minutes or something like that or like an interview in like rolling stone or esquire or something like that or a feature-length documentary like how what percent is somebody going to give up to you like when you turn the camera on or turn the tape recorder on and um you know i lived with three of these dudes for five years before that one of them is my best friend of 20 years the other dude is like one of my other closest friends in my life they gave me everything i needed even the dude who i was not as close to not nearly as close with as the rest of the dudes like um you know like slowly came around and and gave me more than i could have ever imagined because he had you know probably the most intense part of the story to tell um and yeah i couldn't have been luckier man i mean like you you do projects with people you don't know you spend a fucking week just trying to get to know them and get to the point where they they don't think you're gonna like chop their words up and make them look stupid these dudes told me crazy shit like on day one so i had like i i had had the the fucking keys to the kingdom as far as the story when i could get whatever i wanted time was the only factor like we were on we were on a tour the tour was 10 days long i had no production assistance and i just basically had to like track people down to get like an hour with somebody like i could really only do like one an interview like once a day because there just wasn't time like we'd be in the you know how tour goes like there's just you got that tiny bit of downtime and um I, I honestly probably needed to talk to everybody for like an hour a day each, but I ended up usually getting like half an interview with somebody and then like maybe an hour with somebody else. And like a lot of the things looking back on the doc that feel like incomplete or unrealized are just a result of not having enough time to flesh shit out. Cause you can't just jump in and be like, Hey man, what's up? Like, uh, we're in fucking Winnipeg today. You only slept four hours last night. Why don't you tell me the story about when your van crashed and two of your best friends died? Like, um, you gotta, you know, warm up to that. Right. Right. It takes time. Yeah. It takes time. So like, I think, um, under the circumstances I did pretty well. Um, and and I'm really proud of what, what came out of it. And and again, like just that access, like, like you said, like knowing those dudes and and being so close to those dudes, it, it made, it made producing the thing, um, so easy. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting too. I mean, the two thoughts on it. Well, one in regards to you basically uh, having the skills to be able to, not only from a visual perspective, but then, you know, whether or not you knew it, the journalistic side of yourself, like obviously interviewing people is a skill. You have to know how to obviously build a camaraderie. <clears throat> I mean, you didn't have to do that as much because, you know, you knew these people, but there's still that level of trust where it's like, yeah, you can't just drop in like, yeah, tell me the most fucked up shit you've ever you know encountered in your life, like within two minutes, you know? Um, so you like had to pull in those skills and like, did you recognize that as you were doing it? Or it's like, oh, wow, like the sort of, you know, journalist side of me is, is peaking up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I knew I could do that. I knew I was good at that. Like that's probably what I'm best at with documentary is is that, that time of like, 
you know, just having a real conversation. Um, I had done tons and tons of short films. Um, none of them were really any good because none of them were really about anything that was like worth talking about. They were all just like kind of excuses for me to make short films. But, um, but that was like, uh, that's a skill that I've been cultivating like since the first day I picked the camera up. So, um, I was real confident in that aspect of it. Um, and it, it, it wasn't a challenge. It, it was, it was nice. That's awesome. Um, the two last things I want to hit on before I let you go. One of them was the fact like, you know, as I walked away from the documentary and watching, um, you know, this, this, this experience of obviously documenting these, these shows of, of the band that, you know, misery signals, they obviously had some success, but you know, in the relative scheme of things, like, you know, it was kind of a small, small ish blip within the context of punk and hardcore, um, like very meaningful to me. Um, but you know, a lot of people would be like, Oh, misery signals doc. Like that's, that's cool. Whatever. But the, the thing that I took away from it was the fact that it's like, you, you don't realize the impact of what these things are until you obviously have time to look back on it. And so it's like, you know, every band that, you know, each one of us have played in over the years, like you don't realize what sort of impact that has until, you know, whatever, four to 10 years after the band has existed, because the people that, you know, went to the shows and experienced it, like, it could be that could have been the center of their universe for those, you know, whatever, two to four years they were paying attention to that stuff. Um, and to me, it wasn't even so much a documentary on on misery signals as a whole, but obviously just a snapshot of all of the uh, impact that these, you know, just a touring band in general and like what that means and how that kind of transpires. And I know there's no real question couched in this, but it's like, did you, was that kind of the lens that you were trying to view it from where it's like, yeah, this is a misery signals documentary. It's, it's uh, showcasing what this band meant to people, but then it's also kind of trying to be sort of a, a slice of life. Like, Hey, you probably aren't aware that this stuff happens, but you know, this stuff happens like, you know, whether it's van accidents, whether it's, you know, drama, whether it's the fact that these people, uh, you know, have, have met their significant others through this touring and all that sort of stuff. Like, did you view it through that lens at all? Without a doubt, man. And like, I'm so stoked that you, you got it really. Thank you. Um, that's w- without a doubt, this, this could have been your band. It could have been the band that you loved. It could have been the band y- your friend was in, your, your relative was in. Um, this is just, um, this is the experience, man. Um, it's, you know, like, um, and it's funny too, because when I sent this thing out, like I, I sent it out to a bunch of people for notes and like, I got a bunch of notes back that were like, why do I care? Like, why, why does misery signals deserve to have a documentary about them? Like they're not, you know, they're, they're whatever. They're a fucking metalcore band that was like popping, like really like at their height, like six or seven years ago, to be honest, you know, like, um, like why do they, they're, they're, they're not, you know, but it, but it's just, it, it doesn't matter. They're the, they're the, um, the stand in for whatever, whoever, it's just the experience of, of, of hardcore. Um, and, you know, of touring and of that lifestyle. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's a love letter to hardcore. It's a a love letter to a scene that like, um, even though I was only in it for a short time, like profoundly affected the rest of my life. And I'm sure like anybody who's listening to this podcast, um, you know, is somebody who's, who's been in it or around it and can probably identify with that. Like, you know, like I said, like I, I toured in that band for like a fucking year and like, I, you know, I did some more touring with other friends bands after that, but like really like being in the experience and also like going to shows, like how long did you really go to shows when you were a kid? Like we all look back on it and it feels like such a huge part of our lives, but like, fuck, I probably only actively went to shows like every weekend, like, like it was the center of my universe for like, you know, under five years or something like that. Like, and now looking back, that's such like a blip on, 
like it's such a tiny part of my life, but it, but it feels like it was like the, it, like my entire adolescence, teen, early adulthood, you know, it just had like this gigantic, profound effect on my life. And, and I think like DIY, punk, hardcore, whatever it is, like, I think that has that effect on a lot of us who've been through it. So, so to me, it was just a love letter to that. That's really cool. No, I, I, I like that. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that obviously I, w- I wasn't way off in that observation where you'd be like, no, no, seriously, it's just a documentary, Mr. Signals. I'm like, oh, whoops. <laughs> I was reading, <laughs> no, read, not at all. No, read, you read, got read, it exactly, man. Yeah, you <laughs> no, got it exact. No, that's cool. Because yeah, I do think it's like, a, especially too, where I, I mean, I, I find in a lot of these conversations I have that, you know, I, I try not to tread on too much on nostalgia, even though obviously I'm walking through a person's life. Um, you know, the, the idea that you, you obviously don't stop evolving as a person, um, you know, is a reality, but like you can look at these times as obviously being formative and you have learned so much about not only yourself, but like how to deal with people, how to be a professional human being, like all these things that you don't realize you're learning at the time have completely impacted you. So there's no way that you can't look back on that and be like, dude, that was like, I can't, if I didn't have that, I don't even know where I fucking be, you know? Yeah, I know. And so, it's, so now that you, it's crazy, now, totally. So now that you're pivoting, the you know, last thing I want to hit on before uh, I let you go was the idea that now that you have this, obviously this this feather in your cap, so to speak. Um, you know, what does your vision turn to as far as like what you know in an ideal world? What would you like to focus on uh, moving forward? Obviously, more documentary, feature filmmaking. Like you know, I mean, I'm sure that's all kind of on the radar. But um, what's more, um, I guess, tangible for you to kind of take next steps towards? Um, I just finished, I just wrapped up shooting another documentary about a month ago, uh, that I had started to work on before yesterday was everything, um, that I'm really proud of that I think is going to have, um, like a pretty good future when, when we finally get it out there, hopefully sometime in the spring. Um, it's about uh, a high school, um, a high school in Milwaukee that's known for having a, a high percentage of LGBTQ kids, um, and it's an interesting story about like an art project and, and a bunch of their lives. Um, it was a really easy shoot by comparison uh, to yesterday was everything. I think mostly because I had to edit yesterday was everything because we just didn't raise any money. So uh, the editing process is like its own just insane monster. And um, I wasn't really looking forward to it. I didn't want to do it originally. Um, it took fucking forever. And like I said, cost me a lot of time and got no money off it. So like, uh, doing this, this other doc and then just wrapping it in like a week and a half and just like, um, feeling like, Oh shit, like this could be easy. Uh, gets, makes me want to, um, probably try and do some more doc work. Uh, but also I really want to get into narrative filmmaking too. That's like what I grew up on. It's like my favorite thing to do is go to the movies and I didn't go to film school. I have no experience in it. I've never written a script or anything like that. I've shot some shorts, uh, done some music videos. Um, I hope to one day like, give that a good try but um yeah i don't know i'm just kind of leaving my options open something to do with moving pictures though for sure and music yeah. too oh for sure no it's exciting yeah because you obviously still you know are are active musically as well with uh you know whatever state burning empires is in currently or is and you said you're piecing something else together as of right now yeah 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 i'm writing for for something else too got it, got, got it got and it's exciting and it's got cool people in it i'm stoked cool. as, as uh, it should be <laughs> dude you know I'd, I'd love to make more docs about hardcore though too because like i really don't even feel like i scratched the surface of like all the cool characters and like amazing stories that exist in in this scene you know and like really like interacting with it through film made me feel like i was up in it again in a way that i haven't felt in in like years and years and like i don't know at, at some point i'd love to like tell another story from hardcore 
that'd be awesome Oh no, for sure. It's super exciting. Like there's, there's people, some people down here in Southern California that are putting together a, a showcase theater documentary. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, most of us are obviously of an age now where it's like, you know, we're looking back on these things and being like, holy shit, like this one random venue in Corona, California was like so monumental to so many people, but it's like, you know, no one, uh, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the world is just be like, what the fuck is that? Like, this is just a random like shitty theater in a strip mall, and it's like, well, it's way more than that. But like, yeah, that it's again that sort of slice of life stuff where it's just like, if you peek your head, and you look under that rock a little bit, you'll realize like, oh wow, that's got a profound impact. And you just, I mean, that's and that's obviously the beauty of documentaries. Totally, man. And you know what? Like those stories, I find those stories to be universal. Like I don't care what the scene is. If you if you find me a person who was there and can tell me about like an art and a movement that took place at a time and place and tell me that story, I don't give a fuck what it is. I don't care if it's music or like um, sculpture or like, you know, sports or whatever. Like that stuff, like I'll tune in. I'm in. Like if you can get that access and you can get those stories, like th- those are those are fun stories. No, for sure. I mean, and honestly, it's like, it's, we're all trying to do the same thing, you know, like it's just in different mediums, whether it's like playing in bands, whether it's, you know, doing a podcast, whether it's, you know, producing documentaries, we're all trying to place context in a world that sometimes is devoid of it, you know, because obviously it's easy for a person to kind of dip into whatever it is that we're talking about, you know, look up a a misery signals on the internet and kind of watch a few YouTube videos and read the Wikipedia entry, but not understand the sort of, um, you know, tangible feeling that it evoked from people. And like all of these things, either through conversation or through film, it's the only way that people are ever going to not only be able to remember it, but then to be able to like actually see what that meant, you know, it's just, it's like, I mean, we were joking about Bulldogs earlier, and it's just like when you mentioned Victory Records, you know, to people, uh, you know, of a certain age between the ages of, you know, whatever, 28 and 40, you'd be like, well, yeah, Victory is obviously different now, but like, dude, it, Victory is the fucking shit. Like, it was an extremely important <laughs> part. Like, don't, don't totally. malign the Bulldog, you know? <laughs> no, you have no idea. It was, it was, it was all I had, man. Just running around looking for that Bulldog, fuck, for like a year or two. <laughs> totally. I love it. I think that should that should uh, you should get a tattooed so or like a chess piece. Obviously, just just looking for the bulldog. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much, Matt. I really had fun with this. Yeah, me too, man. Thanks so much. So, thank you very much to Matt Mixon for hanging out with me because um, you know it's uh, it's time out of their day, and I appreciate that when people are interested in appearing on this thing and uh, spreading their story because uh, everybody's interesting, you know. So. Let's see, what do I got to tell you? Uh, 100wordspodcast.com is the show's website, and the music for this show, as always, is provided by Lowercase Noises. Google him, find him on Bandcamp, find him on Facebook. Wherever it is you find music, you can find his stuff, and it is incredible. It will put you in a very nice headspace, no matter what you're feeling. So do that. Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And then, um, yeah, should I tell you the guest next week? Yeah, I probably should, right? So the guest next week is Colt Cabana. Colt Cabana. He is a professional wrestler. And, uh, you know, this may seem odd. Like, you know, where's this professional wrestler coming from? Is he like an old punk and hardcore dude? No. Um, But he uh, has a very, very large knowledge base when it comes to touring and putting DIY shows together. It's, It's a very fascinating thing that I've been noticing with uh, not only obviously independent comedy, but then uh, in independent wrestling and wrestling in general, that there are the same through lines that 
a lot of bands go through in regards to you know putting on shows and basically trying to control their own destiny. And uh, I wanted I wanted Colt on the show for quite some time because uh, he's just a he's an entertaining dude to begin with, but um, he's got a really really good story and the parallels that we draw between both of our worlds are uh, really really important because uh, he's doing real hard work and um, yeah bands are doing real hard work so there you go I'll draw some cool parallels there that you probably didn't even consider before I brought that up to you so there you go and uh, until next week please be safe everybody oh and happy Halloween right. Yeah, happy Halloween. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.